Welcome to another episode of the Untitled Podcast. Let's discuss the replacements. What you are about to hear is deeply disturbing. Check, test. Check, 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 check. It's like your voice cuts through really good, but it's on the thing. It doesn't show very high. It just, it'll look like I need to amplify it, but your voice just automatically has, I don't know, more gravity. I think it's because your balls are bigger. That's probably it. Yeah. I I get that a lot. We should do a show about that. Like who has the biggest balls, right? And Mm -hmm. I don't mean in this room, but like, you know, uh, you know, because ACDC has the big balls thing. They wrote a song about it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. Who knows? They, Who has not, the biggest they didn't just write a song about it. They wrote the song about it. Yeah, you know, I don't think you could write other songs about them. No, no. Anybody who tries to make another song about big balls, yeah, they're just going to be an ACDC wannabe. Yeah, I agree with you. There's not enough songs about balls. I don't even know where to go with that. Let's go with the replacements. Okay. These guys have balls. Some great music, man. <laughs> Having big balls isn't always a good thing. I don't know if it consciously popped in my head because of um, Prince dying. Right. But they're also from Minneapolis. In fact, Minneapolis has a rich history of artists that are not as big as Prince, but really important to rock. To me, replacements would be probably second on that list, but there's also Husker Du. Right. Who I love. You love Husker Du? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw Husker Du and replacements like within a week of each other. Oh, did you? In 1984 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And... The classic lineups, the classic ear, the ear. If you like these bands, I saw them in the ear. Jayhawks are from there, Sunvolt, and the Trash Men. Okay. You ever heard of the Trash Men? I have not. You've heard of their song, Surfing Bird. Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Minneapolis. Tommy Stinson has an older brother, Bob. They're from a dysfunctional family. Bob is also highly dysfunctional, but he, he wants better for his brother. His brother's 11 years old, and Bob almost makes him learn to play bass. Okay. They start a band, and I think their band was called Dog Breath. Not it a bad en- name. <laughs> it ended up with the drummer Chris Mars. Now they're three quarters of the band replacements. One day, Paul Westerberg's walking by their house. He hears a band badly jamming on Roundabout by Yes. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, he wants to be in this band. He's a aspiring singer-songwriter. He needs a band. Here's three guys together, but they have this singer. So he kind of sits, watches a band, kind of ingratiates himself to them, and then on an aside tells the lead singer, you know, these guys, they really hate you. So he's the new singer. <laughs> oh, so, so basically he went there and stirred some shit. Yeah. Okay. And takes over the band, right? They become the replacements, and they eventually get signed to Twin Tone Records, which is a little record. And Tommy Stinson is 14 years old. Okay. By the time he's putting out the stuff that that made them a legend, he was like, you're you're younger than me, and I was 18, 19. That's pretty cool. And then the other thing is, I said they signed a twin tone. I don't think they ever actually signed any, from what I've heard. But there's a lot of myths and legends about them. The other legend about them was that 
um, when they got signed to their major, they went to the Twin Tones office, got their masters, and threw them in the Mississippi River. I don't know if that's true either. But I can tell you, boys and girls. Makes for a good story. Yeah. I can tell you, boys and girls, most of what you heard about the replacements is true. Mm -hmm. They put out their first record. Sorry, Ma. I got them right here. Sorry, Ma. I forgot to take out the trash. Mm -hmm. And this record has 18 songs on it. Vinyl. You could call it produced, but it's... I wouldn't call it produced. I'd call it pushing play on the cassette deck, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's... Uh, I, I did listen to that because actually what I listened to was it was a, a collection of all of their studio material. Right. And, and I'm thinking, oh, this is great to prepare for this show. Yeah. You know? And I guess that was the first record. Yeah. And yeah, the production is awful, but the music <laughs> is great. Oh, yeah. It's it's punky. <laughs> it's smart-ass. It's, yeah. it's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so... You know, even if you look on the back cover of this, you know, look how young Tommy is. Well, look how young they all are, but oh yeah, they're he looks all like a little kid. They're all a bunch of kids. Yeah. And how many bands? How many bands were like that 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 were that young that actually got signed? And the only one I can think of that young is probably Dead Milk. How many of those bands never even got to a second record? Or you right, know, yeah. uh, so probably you know more than you'd think. But as far as really good quality guys, as fun as this record is, you would have never heard out of this what they would become especially what paul westerberg would become as a songwriter you know because this has got great titles like i hate music and i love the line in it i hate music it's got too many notes Johnny's gonna die. Johnny always needs more than he takes. Forgets a couple chords, forgets a couple breaks. And everybody tell me that Johnny is hot. Johnny needs something, what he ain't got. And Johnny's gonna die. Johnny's gonna die. Fun, snotty record, poorly produced, poorly recorded, poorly performed. I actually enjoyed it. I it's enjoyed fun. listening to it. All right, this is Hoot Nanny, right? So the funny story about Hoot Nanny is that they're recording this thing, and there's some really cool songs on here and some really impressive songs. The worst song on here, by far, and maybe in their whole catalog, is a song called Hoot Nanny, which is the title of the album. And they had all switched instruments. They're drunk in the studio, switched instruments. They're kind of half-assed jamming the whole time. Paul Westerberg saying, it's a hootin' nanny. And that's about the only lyric in it. Uh And they're just prodging along. They finish it. And Paul Westerberg goes, that's track one on side one. And the dude recording's like, really?
beautiful catastrophe of a record. I don't consider this a, a mature attempt at anything. The thing you're starting to see is little songs that kind of, you know, give us a glimpse into the future. Probably the best song, if you're going to play one song off of here and say, no, 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 they're heading down this path, it's uh, Color Me Impressed. Everybody at your party, they all look depressed, and everybody dresses funny. Color me impressed. Fuck you and your party, asshole. Yeah. Mo- probably the most fun record on here is Treatment Bound at the end. Mm. You know, we're going nowhere fast as we can. And that is the story of The Replacement. thing they put out is stink again barely produced this came out in 82 and it's more of an ep than an album so a lot of times it won't show up on their albums list it's kind of a punk record kids don't follow that's you can hear at the beginning it's basically a minneapolis policeman shutting down the party minneapolis police the party is if you all just grab your stuff and leave there won't be any hassle the party is over with. Grab your stuff and go, and then nobody goes to jail. You want those
there's funny ass songs on here like White and Lazy. Goddamn job. Fuck school. <laughs> Classic dope smoking moron. This is The Replacements Let It Be, a life-changing record for me. The front cover, I don't off the top of my head remember the address, but they're, you know, they're on somebody's roof, and it's a really classic band picture to me, even though Tommy Stinson appears to be picking his nose. (laughs) I went to Minneapolis for a business trip, Mm. and the lady who picked me up at the airport, uh, my counterpart at work, she's like, do you want to see things? Like, I could take you by Mall of America. I was like, I have this list. So my list included First Avenue, where Prince performed and Purple Rain was filmed, but also a lot of great acts performed there regardless of Prince. Right. And the address of this house because I wanted to see that roof. Now did that's kind of stupid. It? I did. It looks like a roof. <laughs> this is an important record for me. Yeah. 1984 was a huge year for music. Yes, there was Purple Rain. Yes, there was Madonna. Yes, there was Springsteen. All that shit, right? Right. But none of these bands, none of them, not one of them, I had ever heard of before I went to college that fall in 84. 
and these all became hugely important. So Sonic Youth, Evolve, mm-hmm. The Minutemen, Double Nickels on the Dime, Husker Du, Zen Arcade, mm-hmm. The Meat Puppets 2. Wait, right. Oh, man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of my favorite. Well, see what I'm saying? All of these albums. Yeah. R.E.M. Reckoning. Yeah. Great the Reckoning. Smiths' first album. There's also Let's Active, Cypress, which is a great record, Black Flag, Julian Cope, Dream Syndicate, Gun Club. All these bands put out these great records. But this album is fun because it really is where things started to change for them. It's raw. It's all the things that the first few albums are. But then they show some maturity, some growth, some ambition. You can tell just the first song you put it on. It's I Will Dare. I Will Dare is kind of a catchy song. Guitar solo by Peter Buck. I really love We're Coming Out because it starts like a hardcore punk song and it ends like a hardcore punk song. But in the middle, there's a snappy little bit that's just cool as hell. One more chance to get it all wrong. One more time to do it all wrong. One more night. there's a couple of songs on here that are almost like novelty songs but they kick ass and they're fun they're short tommy gets his tonsils out which was literally westerberg writing a song to scare the shit out of tommy because he had to go get his tonsils out (laughs) open wide and doctor's here and 
then the other one, Gary's Got a Boner. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that song's about. It's got kind of a complex lyrical thing going well, on. Well, yeah, and I'm sure there's heavy symbolism going on there. Right, yeah. The chorus, Gary's Got a Boner, Gary's Got a Boner, Gary's Got a Boner, Gary's Got it, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Pretty clever. That is. And the best Kiss cover of all time, Black Diamond. Yes. Out on the street for a living, you know it's only begun. That stood out to me when I was listening to all this music. Here's a new band for me I knew nothing about at the time. It's great, it's great, it's great. And then they're talking to me now. There's a song in here, Unsatisfied. It's Paul Westerberg's first attempt at a song of any real emotion or, you know, something other than getting drunk or boners or having your tonsils out. Right. His voice is really ragged and emotional and real. And the thing was, he couldn't sing it until he got drunk enough. Wow. And you can hear, he's drunk as hell on this song, but he means it. Tell me what's wrong. 
To me, the real interesting song, or the most interesting song that shows up is Androgynous. It's a simple song. It's played on this raggedy piano, and they took, I believe, sandpaper and did sort of a, a sandpaper thing underneath it, like the old days. You know, here comes Dick. He's wearing a skirt. Here comes Jane. She's sporting a chain. It's kind of like these androgynous people. Once they become normal, they kind of lose their identity. They lose their hipsterness. But, you know, this whole thing about gender that's going on now, it's kind of like a vision of, of it in a way. Right, know? yeah. Nothing yeah. is more shocking in the early 80s than androgyny. Now something meets boys and something meets girls. They're both of the same. They're overjoyed in this world. Same hair, revolution, unisex, evolution. Tomorrow who's gonna The Replacements Let It Be It's a huge album and, and I don't think You could ever really truly Get the context of this album Because you could play Led Zeppelin 4 You know, maybe forever And, you know, get it and love it And enjoy it The Replacements were a band that was really for you know, Gen X. And with this album, they started alternative music heading towards a commerciality that would eventually break with Nirvana. You know, um, in fact, I believe I saw an interview with uh, Chris Robinson from the Black Crows when Nevermind came out. And he said, you know, I knew eventually that the replacements would make it, you know, and it was Nirvana. And the album is called Nevermind. And that comes from the song Nevermind on Please to Meet Me by uh, The Replacements, you know, which is a few albums down the road. Oh, wow. But the idea that you could be cool, you could be, you could rock, mm. you could not sell out, you could do all these things and achieve your rock and roll dreams came from this album. Because I, I remember listening to the album and me and my friend, you know, we come from high school, we came from metal and stuff. Right, yeah. Get to college, you hear all these things and you hear this band and you're like, well, they're out of tune. Doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. They're in like shitty recording. Like the you can, it, this is like not produced. Doesn't matter. You know. Well, that and that's what always turned me on about punk. Right. You know, just, just that whole scene. It's anybody can do it. Right. Any, any anybody can do it is because punk isn't about musicianship per se. It's yeah. about attitude. Right. But the thing that's great about the replacements, they had the attitude. But there's also this tiny little German there of Paul Westerberg who really had something down the road, you know, to where he really did have something to say and he really could say it well. And this record is to me like it's like a punk record. And, you know, punk records I love. I got a bunch of them. But it's sort of like almost like right here on this record, punk was kind of growing up a little bit, too. Yeah. It was in the early stages. But this is sort of like when punk got pubic hair. <laughs> Had you gag on your beer? Yeah, that was that was unexpected. <laughs> that was thank, a good one. Th thank you for that. 
the replacements then come out with an album called Tim. This is 1985. Now they're signed to Sire Records. Now they're on like a real record label. They were on Twin Tone, and Twin Tone, you know, once this record, uh, Let It Be, kind of broke, Twin Tone had, like most small labels, not expecting an album to break big, can't keep up with demand. Um, and, you know, whatever the reasons were, the replacements went to Sire Records and they drug along Bob. Now, um, Bob Stinson, Tommy Stinson's oldest brother, is a one, was a one-of-a-kind dude. I, I don't know how to... He's, he's kind of a tragic figure in rock. Mm-hmm. You know, he came from a really fucked-up background. He tried to shield his brother from a lot of it, and I think he did shield him from a lot of it. But, you know, Bob took the beatings. Bob took the abuse. Bob saw the terrible shit going on wanted better for his brother, pulled him into this band, and they're starting to go somewhere. But Bob can't keep up. And part of the reason Bob can't keep up is because he is one of these, you know, beaten, abused, broken people. And the stuff starts catching up with him, you know, the drinking uh, in particular, because this band drank. Yeah, that's what, I was, that's what I was reading, that article that you, you sent me, the Rolling Stone article. It sounded like the, these guys, that was their drug of... Absolutely. Um, and... This is where I saw them, somewhere in this period. Um, I believe Tim just came out. So really, looking back, that was the time to see the replacements if you wanted to see the first band, and you wanted to see the legend, and you wanted to see this encapsulation of what everybody has always said about this band, which is they could be the greatest rock and roll band, and they could be the worst rock and roll band, and they could be simultaneously on the same night, both of those. And I saw it. saw one of those replacement shows last night and you'd, you'd have to ask was it one of those or is it one of those 
It was one of those, you know, where they were god-awful horrible, and it was like, what in the hell? Or they were brilliant. Every time I saw them, it was both. And it was kind of uncanny how they would go back and forth. It wasn't a show. It was almost like their, you know, cerebellum would enact for certain things. Well, was it certain specific songs that they would play well, or did it was it just random? Well, let me tell you, I saw, you know, I saw this tour with Bob, mm-hmm. and the next tour I saw was with Slim, who replaced Bob, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. Mm. But specifically to your question, the second time I saw them, they were destroyed drunk when we arrived at the venue before they even took this and not only were they destroyed drunk they had destroyed the dressing room i mean destroyed the dressing room. and there was a girl wandering through the venue also drunk yelling the where are my clothes they took my clothes right wow and she's wearing these huge oversized jeans and flannel shirts right it was their clothes that she was wearing because they took all of her clothes and were wearing them as they got on the stage. <laughs> and she's all of a sudden realized, oh, there's your clothes right up there, sweetie. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, they have my clothes! They have my clothes! And that's when people would look at her and start busting out laughing because clearly those clothes she was wearing weren't hers. Right, yeah. And they tumbled out on the stage like a handful of loose marbles, just mm. all over the place. And, you know, you're like, God damn, man. Are they going to make it through one song? Right. And the to the specific point that you brought up, they were playing shit like Hello, Dolly, Falling Down Drunk. And then just all of a sudden, they go into Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. And I've never heard a better version of that song other than the original recorded version. Right. The Stones have never played it like that. I mean, they, it was, and it was precise. It was, you know, it was, it was, you know, sloppy to like the, but I mean, it was like somebody were, threw, were they really that fucking hammered then, or was that part of the? Sh- well, no, it it was, there was no questioning that mm. they were really that drunk. Um, yeah, you you know, you could, especially being you know cynical now, look back, and and wonder was that real? But I, you know, I'm an adult now. Yeah, that was real, dude. They were they were just destroyed because they would like do that and then. It was slowly go back to where the, you know, it was almost like they became inspired for a minute. Right. You know, and then just slowly fell apart again. Uh, and they would do that. Um, you might get two songs like that in the show. Right. The other would be entertaining as hell, funny as hell, sometimes a little concerting, sometimes mm. a little, like, dark. Yeah. But it was not a kind of show that you would see nowadays. Uh, they, and they were thrown out of plenty of clubs and, you mm-hmm. know, fired plenty of times. Uh, when me and my uh, roommate left that show, the first thing I said is, I'm so glad we're not driving. And, he, and it's, I think it was like, it was cold as hell. And my roommate, my roommate was like, why? Because we had to walk, you know, in this freezing cold. I'm like, I would not want to be on the road when those guys... Yeah. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near it. <laughs> and so... The other thing about that was, you know, we saw that in the club. We were right at the edge of the stage. They rocked hard and mightily, but sloppily drunk. And this is going back to the first time I saw them, not the, the Gimme Shelter show we're just talking right, about. Right. But, my God, I have never, ever since had an experience of where I left a gig 
and was truly thinking, that's it, I went too far, I'm going to be... Yeah, yeah. I have permanent damage. Mm-hmm. that little thing and then didn't talk the whole time all the way home it was freezing cold and the only thing that we were both thinking was oh my god i've i've really done it i've really hurt yeah yeah and i don't know it took a couple of days or something it seemed like you know (laughs) from what i remember but uh we it was so loud and i mean it was painful by the end of it yeah 
But we witnessed. It was like being in the cage with the animals. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, stage diving, broken bottles, just all kinds of moshing and just mayhem. And that was in the audience. What was going on on the stage was ten times worse. Yeah, yeah. Bob Stinson was so drunk that he dropped his beer and the beer spilling on the stage and he dropped down and starts licking the beer off that You've played gigs in shitty clubs. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine putting your tongue on any of those stages? Dude, this stage Not a fucking had held some... <laughs> <laughs> the sweat, blood, and tears that this stage had had, not to mention the filth and... Who knows what else on this stage? And I'm thinking about some of the shitholes that I played growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was a shithole. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, this was Rockets <laughs> in Richmond in 1980. And, mm. you know, one of the worst areas of town. On the worst rickety-ass old stage. I wouldn't have put my tongue on anything or anyone in that whole <laughs> place. And homie's on his hands and knees licking it up off the ground. And then he gets up and they go into taking care of business. Somewhere in this time frame, someone came into one of their shows and was bootlegging it. They had a handheld cassette device, and they were recording the show. They ended up with the tape, and they put it out. Oh, wow. And they called it, The Shit Hits the Fans. <laughs> it's covers. It's a disaster. But they will go back and forth between, like, punk covers, the metal covers. Right. You know, they play Iron Man. And it was just, it was a party, you know? It was a lot of fun. But what was really happening underneath was that Bob was just fucking up. And he couldn't carry his weight. And so, you know, when they recorded Tim, a lot of times he wasn't around. Also, he didn't like Paul starting to write more sensitive songs. He wanted to rock. And so he didn't have anything to play on some of these songs. He didn't know what to play, you know? And so, you know... They would just kind of ignore that, and Paul would do his parts or whatever. The other guys are starting to see, hmm, this is kind of going somewhere. And Bob was almost like, oh, man, you know, responsibility and all this stuff. But he wanted to get out of it. He wanted to not be the... So he tries to quit drinking. And, you know, that's really freaking hard at that, you know. Especially in that, in that line of work, too. Well, the really sad story is, and this is apparently true, there's a biography, I think it's called Trouble Boys, about the replacements. But I've read this in a couple of different places, and Paul Westerberg is very upfront about Bob had stopped drinking for a while, and they play a gig, and I believe it was like on 4th of July, or not, I think it was like New Year's Eve or something. It was one of those celebratory things, right? The other guys are trashed. He's never been around trash people without being trashed himself. And Paul Westerberg hands him a beer on stage 
And he's like, no. Westerberg says, drink or get off my... Bob drank. He never restored himself in that band. Cool member, an expected person, especially to Westerberg. And unusually, his brother really, I've read a lot of things, his brother doesn't come across as totally empathetic too, but he was a kid. You're not that empathetic as a kid. And, you know, really, they're all young. You know, when... When we were that age, we wouldn't have been smart enough to pull our, our friends out. You know, it's just, especially you're on this roller coaster. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, especially at that age. I mean, you, you're a jerk when you're that age. Yeah, you're absolutely. just a jerk. Yeah. And then they make that disastrous appearance on Saturday Night Live. Now, I'm using somebody else's words when I say disaster because I showed you that video. It was a disaster in the best way. I mean, it was exciting. I remember being a kid, you know, being in college, watching that. In the that era... 1984-ish era, Saturday Night Live sucked. Now, it may suck now, and it's gone through sucky times, but that was really when it was the worst. It was just horrible then. They get their replacements, because there's a little buzz about them. Nobody there respects them. Nobody gets them. They weren't cool enough to get the coolest band in America at that point. And they come there, they treat them like shit, apparently. Harry Dean Stanton was the host. And apparently Harry Dean Stanton or somebody there helped them bring alcohol in because they weren't allowed to leave the building after sound check. So they proceed to get drunk and Bob apparently had brought uh, a pot or something with him. By the time they hit the stage live, they're fucked up. Not only that, but everybody knows. And they go and intentionally turn up all of their amps and stuff that they had preset volumes for during the sound check. Now, you know, You've played shows, and you get your levels right, you know, and there's a reason for that. But have you ever played a live television show <laughs> that millions of people will watch, and then you fuck up the sound levels? Well, well yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you start messing with your sound after sound check, you're, you're, you're looking to get beat up by a sound guy. Yeah, well, <laughs> so they hit the stage, and you can tell from the first note, it's, it's louder than it was meant to be, um, and they're drunker than they were meant to and they're wearing like each other's clothes and stuff and and bob's wearing like a dress and it's kind of funny watching the clip of him because he's young and he he still looks healthy and stuff he's in this dress Uh, and he's his arms they're not buff but you know they're young you know young men have tone arms right yeah and so he's rocking the fuck out except for he looks ridiculous in this dress (laughs) and then so they're playing the song bastards of young Uh and uh they get to the solo paul turns to bob and he goes Something like, give it to a motherfucker or something. And that goes out live over the... <laughs> anyway, long story short is they got banned from NBC and wasn't, weren't on TV for several years later again. And that um, the the SNL people came unglued. And Lauren Michaels apparently was like a little bitch about it. Well, I mean, I, I read that article and I mean, I read through the entire article and the, the way it was described... It sounded like this was a fucking train wreck. Like th- this was like a, a, an unbelievably horrible performance, and Lorne Michaels just lost his shit and exploded. And then when I actually got to the point where I finished the article and watched the video, thinking that sounds pretty good. This was not the disaster that article made it. No, out to I be. mean he would do things like you know step away from the microphone in the middle of a verse, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it was a cool like it, it felt live. It felt exciting. It was it was more punk rock than. You know, SNL usually would have the balls to do, especially since Belushi was no longer there. Right, yeah. Had Belushi been there, I think... He'd have been up there with them. He would have been up there with them. He would have appreciated the shit. Yeah. But they were all corporate sellouts at this point. You know, the edginess of Saturday Night Live had ended. Yeah. You know, it was gone. They'd throw Bob out. Bob can't cut it. 
just, you know, it was kind of sad. Here's the guy who started the band. Here's the guy who put the bass in his brother's hand. You know, when they used to tour, when uh, Tommy was still, you know, a little kid, and we're talking, you know, 12, 13, 14, you know, that year. They're driving this van on tour, and they said Tommy would be looking out the window at neighborhoods and houses, and he would cry. There's people in those houses. They, they have families. They have, like, normal lives. They have all the... I'm never going to have that. Right, yeah. You know? And he was almost like being on tour and sometimes being in the band for him was almost, you know, torturous and painful, and you know? And, you know, here they are giving this kid beer and stuff, and, you know, he's a kid. I guarantee you he was younger than any of us hitting a stage oh, and drunk. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he ended up becoming, you know, a badass on the bass and the great, and this great, iconic-looking bass player. To me, when I think of bass players, just the look. And, you know, even going back to Tim with Bastards of Young, this was like our generation's band. You know, Bastards of Young, the song is basically a call-out to Gen X. They've got no war to name us. And it was really cool. And it, what's interesting is, you know, Gen X was the last rock generation. You know, because after that, we grew up and we had kids and we were cool dads. So we, you know, would encourage our kids to be rebellious and listen to rock and do all these things. Well, then it's no longer rebellious. Then, then, yeah, right. Then, then it's conformity. I remember thinking, God, what are our kids going to do that's going to be so shocking to I'm going to rebel by listening to auto-tune dog shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and worse, you remember all that freedom of speech and stuff, you guys? Remember when you guys fought against the PMRC and all that stuff? Right. Yeah, we're going to bring all that back. We're going to be the generation that brings back all the shit you hated yeah. growing up. You know, we're going to bring it all back. So, yeah, so they still shock us, I guess. We're going to rebel by being, I love that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. What generation has done that since World War Two? None. Uh, well, this one. <laughs> this one. This is it. Yeah. You know, so... Fuck you, millennials. <laughs> Fuck you. You know, our kids are millennials, but our kids are cool. My daughter's really into ska, so uh, she she got the lessons of music right. Yeah, well, you know, my kids know the fucking Beatles. My kids know good music. Yes, they, they yeah, might not be too. as cool as me, but <laughs> for the most part, if we liquidated 90% of the millennials right now, I think we'd be better off. That's a bold statement. Well, I'm hoping their younger brothers and sisters come up like punk did you know yeah the punkers came up behind the hippies and they you know you had iggy pop iggy and the stooges and stuff showing up going fuck flower power fuck that shit and really you know punk in general and then when gen x came along we we were rebelling against the previous hair metal generation oh and all that crap and that needed a rebellion yeah well i'm hoping (laughs) whatever they call the next generation after millennials you guys have to save us you have to you have to be like the World War II generation. Save us, please. I'm asking you, 12-year-olds out there, kill your brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah. If you're 12 years old and you've got like a 20-year-old uh, sister in Berkeley, uh, she needs to die. Well, and, and millennials, you know, I, I say this in all sincerity, okay? It's not that I'm old. It's your music really does suck. It really does. Every generation has said this about the previous generation, but it really fucking does. Yeah. And you know what? There might be some good bands in there, but here's one thing. This is indisputable, okay? If you're a millennial or if you're like one of these people are like, oh, every generation, you cannot dispute this fact I'm getting ready to drop on you. Millennial bands have the worst 
uncreative band name ever in the history of the world. I can't even think of. I mean, they just K, well, K, Cage the Elephant, and have you ever listened to them? They're not bad. Well, that's what I'm saying. But yeah. you know, <laughs> spend five more minutes coming up with a band name. I can throw out band names off the top of my head left and right all day long that are so much better than, you know, Beach House. I guess when when we were growing up, I mean, the band name was like the ultimate important thing. You you had to have the band name before you picked up an instrument. Right. Can you imagine if you came up to me and I said, "Hey, man, I got a band. You want to join?" You're like, "Yeah. What's the band name?" Sleigh bells. What? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> it's like you know. Come on, kids. Try a little harder. Yeah. Cage the elephant. I, I, like, I'm give gonna me a ha- name. I have to kind of disagree with you on cage the elephant. That, that's not that bad of a name. Cage the elephant. That's not that bad of a name. Really? So now it's uh 87. They get a guy named Slim Dumlap to join the band, replace Bob. Slim is is this dude, man? He's a great guy and apparently real quick wit but he looked like he was a hundred years old like he looked like all right they replaced the kind of overweight fat balding drunk guy with this old drunk guy (laughs) you know uh but a great guitar player well he didn't officially come on and into the band till they had finished the please to meet me album they'd recorded this in memphis at ardent studios which is where um big star had recorded their albums, and the producer of the album is Jim Dickinson, who also produced The Last Big Star. Paul was a massive Big Star fan, and there's a song in there called Alex Chilton, and Alex Chilton was, you know, the leader of of Big Star, and before that he had been in the box. But Big Star was almost like a template for the replacements, except for Big Star tried. They tried so much harder, where the replacements got closer and just seemed to sabotage themselves every chance they got. They would uh, have, you know, record industry showcase things. Have you ever played one of those when you're in a band? A showcase? Oh, I've played many showcases, yeah. So you know what the deal is. You know, bands come in and out, record people watch, and, you know, they they mostly sit there and just, you know. Well, yeah, I didn't didn't do it for, for like, a... a like a record company or anything. Yeah. It was really to be able to get a gig to, um, to be able to get regular gigs in a place. You had to play oh, okay. a showcase first. Yeah. Well, see, we would get these gigs without having to play a showcase, but when you go yeah. and you try to get signed to a label, yeah. you know, you go and you play for these record guys and different bands would come in and play. And you know, the, the, the important people are there, but they know 90% is going to be crap mm-hmm. except for there's this band coming up, the replacements, man, you got to check them out. And the replacements would just get up there and play Black Sabbath covers, <laughs> drunk as shit, and not care. And the record people would be like, "Who in the hell are these guys to do this to us and waste our time?" Right, you yeah, know. Yeah. And they would—that's the kind of thing they would always do. They would always like, you know, stick their nose up, you know, and just be like, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, no, man, you're fucking yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and they did that over and over again. But with "Please to Meet Me." You know, as it, if I was going to play one album, you know, I don't think you can you can necessarily play them, let it be first, and then really get it. You either start at the beginning and you gradually go up, or to me, you go side one, please to meet me, track per track, the most solid and rocking cool album of mm-hmm. the band. I think in some ways, some fans were kind of disappointed that it wasn't kind of fucked up. There weren't any bizarre covers on it. Right, but it rocks and it's really well produced, and the guitars kick ass, and it's all Paul, you know, Paul Westerberg. He plays the solos, everything. Um, they didn't have another guitar player, 
And they had recorded at this, you know, pretty crappy little studio. It's in Memphis and it's famous, but it's not a great studio. Right. Uh, as far as, you know, technically. But they captured something. I, I, I really love that album. It's still one of well, my that, favorites. Well, that was when I was listening to it, because I listened to it all in order, you know, from from the beginning. And, yeah, there was a, a lot of, like, you know, punk stuff that was, you know, wasn't produced very well and wasn't recorded very well. And then all of a sudden... All of a sudden, there, and I'm guessing that's right where you're talking, you know. And I didn't listen to it enough to become familiar with the records behind these records. But that one record, there was like it went from punk to something else. Yeah. Well, you know, like for example, uh, if you played somebody the song, the that song is just it's classic rock. I'm really well done. There's nothing about it that does not speak professional rock band. You know. Right. Right. It's really cool. All that stuff almost an anti-replacement song in some ways. But it's not a sellout, and it rocks.
And all through that album, there are these great moments. And like I'd said before, one of the songs is called Nevermind. And that's where Nevermind by Nirvana came from, specifically. Mm -hmm. And if you go back now and you listen... uh, When you were listening to these records, because you Mm -hmm. did your due diligence, somewhere in there about that time and throughout this, couldn't you tell the vocal influence of Kurt Cobain from Paul Westerberg? Oh, yeah. You know, it's there. Well, yeah, you you could hear that whole... um, The birth of, like, the alternative, grungy kind kind of sound. And, And it started... It started, there was something there. It wasn't grunge per yeah, se, yeah. but it was it was the start of it. Yeah, it was definitely the germs of things. Yeah, yeah. Here was a band that, you know, guys like us who had kind of divorced ourselves from the big leagues. We we were almost in this mentality. We we um we identified the replacements because we were like, We are never going to be, you know, one of these big bands. We're never I couldn't imagine being in Dirt right, Iron yeah. Maiden. I could never play like that. I could never look like that. I would never own this equipment, you know. And then you'd see, you know, the replacements. And it's like, these guys are barely holding it together, but this is great. This is better than any concert I've been to in years, it, you know. It, exactly. And that and that's part of that punk attitude that I always loved. Well, this, I think I, I literally just thought of what I think the difference about that and punk, besides all the other things I mentioned, but... His singing is better. Yeah. You know, punk rock singing generally is not great, and it doesn't, you know, matter so much. But his singing is good, even on the crappy punk rock songs. Well, and that's the thing, because it it was no longer a punk record. Right, right. You know, it it became something else. Right. Pleased to Meet Me. Great record. So, uh, you know, um, the first song, I Owe You Nothing, he had kind of written that towards his old management and possibly Bob.
the song Alex Chilton is a total homage to mm. Big Star. Mm. I think the last verse before they go in the solo is uh, I never travel far without a little. Okay. Um, there's songs like Shootin' Dirty Pool, which kick mm. ass. <laughs> song track per track but my favorite song on there is i don't know because it's almost like that song it was close to parody but it was kind of like this is what the band's all about the you know he'll say a line and the band will be like i don't know so he'll be like who's behind the board i don't know they tell me he's a dope you know yeah. the soundboard engineer which you thought that of every club you ever went into oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh you know what the fuck you saying? I don't know. Our lawyer's on the phone. I don't know. How much are you in for? I don't know. What do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> and it, the whole thing is like that. And it just rocks like hell. And there's like a killer sax solo. <laughs>
track called Can't Hardly Wait. And that was produced by Alex. And it's called the Memphis version because they had done a lot of versions that sound like replacements. You know, it had been, it, I think it had actually been recorded for Tim and not used. But they get Alex Chilton and he puts horns on it and it just really has a mature feel to it. That was it. This is the Untitled Podcast. This is the Untitled Podcast. I can't wait. really has a mature feel to it that was it this to me is when they're straddling this kind of line and I love that in between where on one record on one track they'll sound so professional and classic rockish you know and then on the other one they're silly they're stupid they're you know whatever but they all it all blends together in this really just rock record now the replacements are a big time band I mean they're on a major label mm-hmm. uh, their sales have increased. But I just found out recently that the replacements still don't have a gold record. Really? Well, and maybe with this box set that just came out, it might have, you know, that might be changed. But until recently, and and to the last of my knowledge, they've never had a gold album. None of them. That, that's surprising, but not not really. Well, it took like um, Murmur by R.E.M. like 20 years or something to finally go gold. Did it? Yeah. Uh, and that was a band who rose to heights that, you know, you would think their whole catalog would come up immediately. Right, yeah. But replacements didn't do that. Um, instead, they put out, to me, the first album that wasn't a straight-up trajectory towards greatness, which was called Don't Tell a Soul. Right. However, Don't Tell a Soul has a classic, classic single, a I'll Be You. Mm-hmm. Great pop song. Just a game 
And there's some killer stuff on here. Um, Aiken to be. Just 
It's a cool album, but it is definitely a step down from where they were heading. And it's starting to go towards the Paul Westerberg solo kind of thing. It's becoming less about a band. It's definitely on record becoming less about. There's no chaos on the next for the last two. Right. Don't Tell a Soul to me might be the weakest album in their catalog. And some people say, are you kidding? Compare that to Ma Let Out the Trash. And it's mostly that, yeah, they just sound tired. They sound uninspired most of They were of done. It. Yeah, I mean, they weren't quite done, but they were close to being done. Because on the next record, they were done. Rip out the table we need Room to move In a life unstable You're so easily amused Right after Don't Tell a Soul was released, this is 89, they did a tour with Tom Petty, and apparently that was a disaster. They didn't take it seriously, they abused the audience, the audience abused them, you know, all the way around, it was apparently a bad deal for everything. Doesn't get more punk rock than that. Yeah, you know, you know, and it's funny, because, you know, it's my understanding that Tom Petty would go out and he would take bands, and, you know, it was bands he appreciated, and he wanted to give them something and expose them to something. And their placements are like, no, man, see, here's another opportunity where we could raise our game. Fuck that. Yeah. You know, let's get drunk. <laughs> so let's burn some bridges. Burn some bridges. Well, basically the last album it came out in 1990. It's called All Shook Down. And it's, it's a good title. It's kind of a bummer of an album. It's not a terrible album. Right. Um, but they have, uh, they have some guests on here like John Cale from Velvet Under. And most importantly to me is Terry Reed. Because you remember I played you Terry Reed when we were at your house? Yeah. Terry Reed just, I just, why doesn't he get any respect? Why doesn't he get this? You know, why don't people know who he is? I'm going to pop in a Terry Reed song right in here just to spite you people who don't know who Terry is. Terry's great, and he played on this album.
So the replacements break up in 91. All Shook Down is kind of a template, actually, for what people would end up calling alt-country, really. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's Paul Westerberg. It's a solo album. It really is. He's He's got the other guys, but not everybody's playing on every track. And, you know, there's lots of guest people coming in. <laughs>
So then the band breaks up in 91. Mm-hmm. Then it's kind of weird even then because Paul Westerberg goes on and does a solo stuff with mixed results. Tommy joins Guns N' Roses. Hmm. Tommy Stinson from The Replacements was in the band Guns N' Roses from the time Duff McKagan left until the time Duff McKagan came back. Really? Yes. I did not I didn't did not know that. Go and look go and look man. It's so funny because you have Guns N' Roses, who seemed to me a band that these guys would hate. As far as the whole Axel thing, because you remember Axel and Cobain hated each other. Yeah. You know, and it was because Axel's like this diva rock star. And the replacements were always anti-rock star. But right. Tommy needed a paycheck. Well, yeah. I mean, and he wants to be a working musician. It's well, the thing gig. that always blew my mind, though... <laughs> Was like Tommy when you do when he'd do interviews and you'd talk to him or hear about him, he would always say working with Paul Westerberg was harder than working with Axel. And uh, I'll bet I'll bet that's true and probably for a lot of personal. I can't imagine it being true. I can't imagine how could that possibly be. I'll bet you it, the more of the personal connection. I mean, when you're when you're working for a guy like Axel Rose, and this guy didn't start the band Guns right. N' Roses, okay? Right. He he's got no skin in the game like that. Yeah, he's an employee. He's a hired. He, hand. He's an employee, and he knows that. He knows that going in. He's a hired hand. Then, really, the last part of the story is that they get back together briefly. So I believe it was in um, 2012. So in 2012, there's a replacements, re- and really it was Tommy and Paul, um, Chris. Mars, the drummer, he um he never really went and did anything post replacements that was very serious musically, but apparently became like this world class fine artist and sells his work for lots of money, and probably is the most successful of all of them financially, and on his own terms. It's weird when the rhythm section does better than yeah, the rest yeah. of the band. Because Tommy had this steady paycheck from Guns N' Roses, and I'm sure it was pretty decent. You know? Right, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, Mars, Chris Mars is out there. He he sells his work for a lot more money than you and I will probably ever pay for artwork. So um, that's interesting. Yeah, it's great. So they, they, they get back together for a couple of years. They kind of play these hit and miss things. A lot of possibility. Everybody's excited. Uh, I have a friend, uh, John, uh, from Detroit who has his own podcast and he loves the replacement. And so John, we're dedicating this one to you, but I believe he went out and got to see this, you know, kind of reconstitute replacements, you know, and it's not quite going to be the same. It's not the same as seeing them in a club with, you know, a hundred people. And now people know who they are and they come to the shows and there's the legend and people are singing with the songs and everything. And it was kind of like, wow, they're going to finally do it. They're going to, no, they fucked it up. Now it's 
Through whatever reason, they destroyed it, and I don't know what they'll do or if there'll be anything ever. I don't think there will be. So it's done. I think it's done. The things that kind of happened in the meantime is you'd have, you know, like I said, Nirvana. But remember the Goo Goo Dolls? Yeah. The Goo Goo Dolls sound like the replacements if you remove the alcohol. And I don't want the world to see me Cause I don't think that they'd understand When everything's made to be broken I just want you to know who I am I'll tell you, a lot of people diss on the Goo Goo Dolls. I love the song Iris. To me, they sound, and he sings just like Paul Westerways, and you could tell the influence. Mm. Yeah, really, I would say anybody coming up in the 90s in that alternative era who wrote songs owed a little bit to Paul Westerberg. I agree with that. I, I haven't seen this, but they made a Paul Westerberg signature guitar. But it was made by, like, K. <laughs> you know, or it's just some company nobody ever heard of. And the guy said he saw it at like a CVS or a, a some pharmacy crap store and it was all dusty and it was in a box like a toy guitar. And he, it was a piece of shit guitar, but it was a Paul Westerberg signature guitar. I tried to find one. You can't find them. But it's hilarious that who even came up with this idea? But if you find one of those, you've really got something. I, yeah, I would think so. I yeah. would think so. Uh, Bob Stinson died in 95 of organ failure, and it was from drinking and drugs. And probably the most disturbing part of that, I mean, just the sadness was, you know, he kind of he kind of got left behind. But they said that he was always happiest just jamming in a garage, you know, without any expectations and just trying to do it. Ultimately, the drugs and, and you know, I think a whole lot of his childhood and just all of the stuff and you know, going through this machine and just, he just wasn't cut out for this stuff. Well, yeah. And you, you called him before a broken person. Yeah. And that, unfortunately, there's a lot of that in, in rock and roll history. Right. And, you know, it's, it's not an unusual story. Been produced by Donnie Shattuck.